anyone who wants to go, we read through the Bible and we, we get to the revelation. And uh, some of you, Bible and your people, you haven't done the revelation yet. You did the class and you don't finish your Bibles. Make good. It's like Clint Eastwood. Is that 65 or 66 books you read? Punk. All right, so get it done, right? Um, but as we're reading the Revelation, uh, it opens, you know, it, if, you've, if you've ever tried the Revelation, there's bowls and scrolls and locusts and all kinds of things, but it doesn't start very difficult. As a matter of fact, it starts incredibly pedestrian in the sense that what you're reading is not hard to understand. It's just challenging. As, as it opens with uh, a, a personal letter from Jesus through the Apostle John to uh, seven different churches. And in the middle of the seven churches, there's the church of Pergamum. And it has this, uh, and, and you'll, you'll get where I'm going very quickly. It says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, uh, that means every word that comes from him is true and, and cuts through to reality. Uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It would have been a big deal because in their town, um, there was one of the shrines to, to Caesar. And it was a big deal because if you didn't worship Caesar and everyone knew it, that's how Christians got killed. It wasn't so much that, oh, you're a Christian, we'll kill you for that. It was every Roman had to, amongst whatever other gods they worshiped, they had to worship the emperor as God. It gave him a sense of how can we pull Rome together as a group? And the Christians like, well, I'm not saying Caesar is Lord, I'm saying Jesus is Lord. And that's how they did it. And so in their town, the Christians, they'd gone through some persecution even. Yet you hold fast to my name. And you know, I'll go back, go back, because uh, I got to finish reading it. Um, you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed amongst you where Satan dwells. In other words, this is a, a, a church where they've even had people martyred to stay true to the faith. But even in the midst of that, he said, I have a few things I hold against you. Some of you, there hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is all the way back in the very beginning, in the, in the books of the law, as the children of Israel, they'd come up out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and, and, and were getting ready to cross at Jericho into the promised land. And, and if you've ever seen, you know, uh, Josh and the Giant Wall or any of the Veggie Tales, you know, this whole thing. If you haven't seen the Veggie Tales, it's okay. It's also in the Bible. Uh, but uh, the people there, the, the Israelites just want to pass through to get to be able to get to the promised land. And, and there's a lot of them in these countries that are like, uh, no, we do not want all of you passing through. And the ones who fought, the, fought them lost. And so they passed through anyway. And the, there's a king who's like, hey, this is bad news. These people are bad news. And he brings this guy, Balaam, to say, hey, can you bring a curse down on them? And three times Balaam tries to curse the people of Israel and it doesn't work. So Balaam gets brilliant advice. He says, look, God is on these people's side. You're not going to be able to get me to do anything to get God to change his mind. But listen, I can't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves. Like, how are we going to do that? Get them to worship your sex gods with them. And so they send in their priestesses, their, their, uh, their young women, and amongst the people of Israel. And the people of Israel begin to have sexual and uh, immoral relations with them, which it might sound, oh, is it just fun? It was actually even a little bit more difficult for them because in every case, the rain god and the sex gods are put together. And you're going into this land where it doesn't rain very much, and, and, or, where, or sorry, you're coming out of Egypt where it never rains, and you had a nice river where the river always watered. And, and now you have to go into this land where you've got to trust God for rain, and these people are worshiping the rain god, and they're struggling with what god are we going to worship, and they, they bow down to this god. And, and, and according to John, all the way back here in the Revelation, so you've got this story where Balaam taught the people of Israel, he led them into sexual immorality. 
And even though this, this church, Pergamum, these people are even being willing to martyr for their faith. Jesus is like, but I've got something against you. You're practicing sexual, food sacrifice to idols. There's that picture. And practicing sexual immorality. To the next church, the church of Thyatira, he writes, the words of the son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, the love and the faith and the service and the patient endurance in Brookside. I know what you guys are made of and I know your love for one another and I know your endurance and I know how often and how much you talk to me. How can we serve people and care for people? It's all about who we are as well. I know your works. So that even you're getting better at it. Your latter works have exceeded the first. But hold on, I got something against you, he says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who either is a woman in their church or Jezebel, pulling back from the Old Testament, was um, when the people of Israel set up a kingdom and it was going well, there was a king named Ahab who was the one who turned them to start to worship the sex god Baal. And Jezebel was his wife, Jezebel. You catch that in her name. Um, and so it's either a reference to a specific person in their church who is teaching or just that they are following into what John would consider Satan worship, which is ultimately no matter how much service, no matter how much martyrdom, no matter what's going, sexual immorality, there it is again, right? Who is seducing my servants to practice sexual morality. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to. It doesn't take more than a cursory reading of the Bible to know that the God of the Bible feels very strongly about sexual morality. But it doesn't fit with our culture at all. And as I started to think about it, I've been, I know I've been needing to talk about this for a while, but I felt this incredible divide between a God in the Bible who's so occupied with our sex lives and then our normal 21st century American experience, which is like, okay, well, what's, what's, what's the big deal? You know, like, so this is the question we have to answer today. If we're gonna understand What's going on? And by the way, if we're going to have freedom, we've talked about the different ways we lay down our lives. And we've mentioned, you know, uh, as a people, we want to be free. We do not want to live as slaves to any law because law keeping has never brought the life that God planned for us. And yet when we in our freedom begin to do things that destroy us, and we've talked about alcohol, we've talked about some other things, drunkenness and, and, and allowing whatever it is to begin to eat our lives. I, I think we all have to be honest with one another. There's probably nothing eating our life more as a, as a body, as a people, as 21st century Americans, as a church, wherever you want to go, scale it big and small, than sexual immorality. And if we're going to figure it out, we're going to have to ask, why is God so occupied with our sex lives? So I have three pictures I want to draw really briefly to begin to give scope to how we can see it. And then we're going to look at Paul teaching about it. And we're going to draw some conclusions today. So first, I have this point here, the point of disagreement. It was a good number of years ago, and I was chatting with a man named John Miles. He uh, is a prof philosophy professor somewhere, but at the time, he was a prof philosophy professor here. And if you ever talk to those people, they're brilliant they're so smart. And I made some sort of comment to him like about how our culture has all these disagreements about right and wrong and, and no one agrees about anything. And he laughs and he goes, really? And I'm looking at him like, are you stupid? <laughs> yes, really. He goes, tell me the disagreements that we really uh, struggle with in the American culture that have nothing to do with sex. Go. <laughs> who, who believes that terrorism is good? Stealing, who believes that stealing is good? Murder, the, the things that we struggle with are 
all around sex, even like abortion, which we'll go back, it really still has to do with the question of what I do with my sexuality and why. Now, there's drugs. You could, you could actually, if you start to scrape the bucket, come up with a list, but you're going to find that if you remove the, uh, the world of sexuality from the morality equation and start to look, we actually agree on almost everything. No, it's sex that we're disagreeing about. Why does the Christian God care so much and our world sees it so differently? And the next one is what I'm going to call the hypocritical scale. Okay, so here's how the hypocritical scale works. I got a couple slides to help you think it up. And the first point to understand it is that all good is gift giving and all evil is theft. I mean, murder is stealing life. Lying is stealing truth. And, and every good that you can think of, you're, uh, you're giving something for free to a person because you want well-being to come to them. So you don't think of it as good necessarily if you sell it. You know, so if I walk a little old lady across the street, it's because I want her to be cared for. But if I charge her $5, you don't think of it as particularly good. And of course, if I do it to steal her purse, then you think of it as stealing. Bad, right? All good is gift giving. All stealing or all evil is theft, right? Number two, we define good and evil by the value of the gift or the value of the theft. In other words, uh, you know, I've often used the silly example, but uh, in back-to-back -back days, years ago, I had uh, on Thursday night, a pack package of gum stolen. And on, uh, on a Friday afternoon, I had my uh, 1976 Les Paul Standard stolen, which was worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And I'd had it for 20 years, right? And, and, and uh, you know, I was asked, which one hurt me more? To, you know, and, but we know the reason is because of the value, right? And when we start to th think of the things that have real, real value, like life, that's why you put murder at the top of the list and torture and, 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 and rape and those sorts of things, because the value of the things stolen is so high. But here's the deal. Our culture hypocritically values sex lowly when we think of it as a given thing, but resumes its true value when it's stolen. Here's what I mean. I watch, uh, I've been watching some Brooklyn Nine-Nine recently, but you know, Parks and Rec, it doesn't matter, whatever office, whatever show you watch, in our culture, when people begin to date or whatever, it is assumed that they're having sex almost immediately. It's just a thing, it's not a thing, it's not a big deal. It's assumed that anybody who's, it's just what you do. And our kids are inheriting this, this way of thinking that sex is really not really that valuable. As soon as, whenever it's given, we try to play that game with it. But listen to me, I talk to the people who've had it stolen from them. This is what I do as, as, as a counselor and, and as a counseling pastor, the, the, uh, usually women, but sometimes men as well come to me and the brokenness that is, is hiding behind the theft of it because as soon as it's stolen, we resume its true value. We know that a monstrosity on the largest of scales has happened. Look, it is either a thing of intense value, in which case the giving and taking of it always reflects that value, or it's not, but it can't change value. Okay? And finally, this one, athe atheistic sex and the God of this age. Uh, this isn't maybe what you think. A number of years ago, uh, I saw this headline, and, I, and it said, Christians and their atheistic sex or something like that. What is it called? Sexual atheism, Christian dating, uh, data reveals deeper. It wasn't a very well-written article. You can go check it. I have that on the next slide. But this author is talking about how as Christians, 
We let God have, we call him Lord over all these areas of our life, of our service, of our giving, of our whatever. But suddenly when it comes to sexuality, and it, it was only a couple years ago and it brought all sorts of stats from christianmingle.com and whatever. The fact is Christians are living in practice sexual atheists. That is to say, when it comes to my sexuality, God ceases to exist. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on the subject that might be of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It's the ultimate oxymoron. And then he continues, a person who at once, who at once believes in a wise and sovereign and loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously that God should not or, or cannot inform their thinking of living sexuality sexually, sorry. It reminds me of those famous red letters in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? There's a disconnect, the article said, between our identity and our activity at this specific area. So when I began to think of the subject and how are we going to pour it out, I had to help us realize that there is something incredibly incongruent about how we're receiving it and practicing it. And not just the what we call right and wrong or whatever, but actually how we're living and how it's being experienced by us. And if that's the case, we're going to need to look intently at where the Bible talks about this and see if we can't learn some things that will help us begin to understand the way God sees it and the way God treats it and why he treats it as such. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome. We're going to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to look mostly at chapter 6, but I want to give some lead up. Uh, the book of Corinthians he had written a letter to them and they had a number of things going on. He kind of writes it in sections. Now about this question, now about that thing. And, and so it's really helpful because you don't have to know the whole book to be able to look at a specific section and say, oh, that's what he's talking about here. And so for two chapters in five and six, Paul begins with this. He says, uh, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality. We need to define that real quick, by the way, because we're going to keep using it. The word is a pornea. Uh, it's where we get our word pornography from amongst other uh, words that have that porn in it, right? But it's not, it, it actually will say what it is. It is any time you illegitimately join your body to somebody else, which is to say somebody besides your spouse, okay? So it always means that. It always, in the Bible, it specifically means the act of joining your body to someone else uh, in a way that you ought not. Um, which, of course, you know, the irony is that uh, pornography is not pornea in that sense. But it is lewdness, sensuality, and a lot of other things that Paul talks about with a, hey, it's destroying you. But we need to talk about this specific act in ways that will be useful to us, so we need to be able to define it. He says there's sexual morality among you, and then he begins to describe theirs, which might creep you out a little bit. He says there's a, and it's a kind that's not even tolerated amongst the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Whether it's his mom or not, it doesn't say. The construction seems, seems to lend like sort of a stepmom situation. But either way, you see, this young band of Christians, we, we think of Christianity as, as this thing that's existed for centuries and behind us, but they're the ones who are getting it started, right? And Paul is teaching them that you're not under the law. And so they're like, hey, we're not under the law. We can do whatever we want. And you have freedom. Use your freedom to serve God. And this guy's like, you know how I'm going to use my freedom? Dad's wife. And Paul's like, <laughs> right? And, uh, and then he says, and this guy's arrogant. So a little quick principle that I want you to catch is when we talk about it together, it's not just, hey, are you struggling? Because I'm not stupid. I know that all sorts of brokenness is in this room today and is in our greater body. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not a fool. 
I think we all gather together as the pure and squeaky clean ones. And yet something profound happens when we not only have the struggles we struggle with, but we begin to call them good. Okay. And that's where Paul's like, whoa, that's a step beyond. And he actually says, remove this person from you. And then he's going to spend uh, another chapter or so talking about what is appropriate for the church to remove somebody from them. And we're not going to get into that today because I want to talk about the other stuff. But I do want to grab one verse from his, uh, from his discussion on when the church, uh, who the church judges and who they don't. And, and in the middle of it, he says, look, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And so as we start to talk about sexuality, one of the great mistakes I think the church has made is we think not only ought we use uh, God's ways to govern ourselves, we're going to attempt to govern everyone else with them as well. I think we've done a lot of damage to our world by trying to do this. And Paul's like, I don't judge those who are outside this body. God will judge those, but we must stand and judge correctly over who we are. Okay, and that's as far as I'm going to push that subject today because it's another sermon altogether. And I want to get on to where Paul actually talks about it. And so in chapter six, he begins his discussion here. He's taught them as Christians that all things are lawful for you. The fact is you are not under the law. You've been given freedom by Jesus Christ to pursue life and well-being through him in the ways that actually work. But he says, not all things are helpful. There's some things that could actually destroy you, right? All things are lawful for me. And notice those quotes because it seems that this is the phrase that they've grabbed onto and have started sleeping with their father's wives in order to be able to use it. And Paul's like, well, hold on. But I will not be dominated or ruled by anything. When we talk about freedom, I'm deeply distressed by the things that are ruling your life because they're killing you. And no amount of you looking at me saying, it's not a sin, is going to help me look at you and go, oh, so now you are freedom and it's life. No, it's slaving you and it's hurting you and it distresses me. And because of that, and it would distress Paul, he says, and then this little quote, again, the, the translators put the quotes in here because it seems the line that they're using is, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. You see, they're saying, look, I've got this stomach. Clearly God made it for food. I've got this genitalia. Of course God meant me to use it. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, that's not how this works. Because God will destroy all that is not left in him. Point number one that Paul wants you to know is that being free from the law does not make unhealthy things magically become healthy. If I've, if I've been on a strict diet because I wanted to lose weight or I wanted to look good, right, and I get off that diet, doesn't mean that my newfound freedom means that if I eat donuts nonstop that I won't blow up like a balloon. You see, you see how that works? A thousand times more so with your soul just because you're not under the law does not mean that things that will destroy you will not. They will, okay? And if we're going to evaluate sexuality correctly, we have to recognize what kind of power it has. So he continues. He says, the body's not made for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up his body, us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of the prostitute? Never. So let's stay on this verse for a second. First of all, there is a maker of your body. You didn't make it. Your body. And not only that, he's going to go on later to say your body's been bought with a price. It's God's. And God, when he made it, he intended the body he gave you to be able to do the things that would build his kingdom. And that's what it's for. And that's why as Christians, this is a total sideshow, but the reason Christians always buried, because 
everyone uh, just burned the bodies of the dead, you know. Cremation was the thing, except for the Christians and the Jews. And why are these the burials? Because it was, this, it was this defiant statement that said that that body is, uh, belongs to God and he's going to bring it back to life at the resurrection. And the Christians always saw the body as being given and taken from God. And then he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You see, as Christians, we've been united with him. This is his way of putting his work into the world. And when we, uh, a prostitute in this case is the word porne. So porneia is the actual act. Porne, so it's, it's a person who is sexually immoral. Are we going to do that? Are we going to join together? Paul's like, never. Point two, your creator. I use the creator here as opposed to God or Jesus, whatever, because I want you to catch the implication that you are created, you are made, and therefore the creator has a right to decide on your purpose, making your bodies. But we haven't even got to the big guns yet because check this out. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He who is joined to anyone, because he says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Listen, every single person you have ever joined your body to became part of, two became one. I've done, uh, so far, 30 different weddings. And every time I say I do, let, you know, let man, no man put asunder, all those sorts of things that you say. But the fact is, I have no magical, mystical power to turn two into one. Do you know what does have the magical, mystical power to two, two into one? Doing it. Literally, that's, that's the idea. And, and the whole point of a wedding was not to cause, from all the ancients, was not to cause two to become one. It was for the whole community to stand and look and say, we have all agreed that these two have decided, and, and the families and everyone, and then in the ancient world, they just send them into a tent so they could get on with the, get the business of getting to be one. And we live in a culture where we've joined a person after person after person, acting like nothing has happened, and the Bible's like something is. You are tearing your soul to shreds. Two become one flesh. So the third point is sex cannot be separated from the two become one principle. It is marriage. It is. And if that's the case... <laughs> We need to check out how he finishes. Flee from sexual immorality. See, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Did you catch what he just said there? How many other sins are outside the body? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Every other sin. Every other sin is outside the body. And we'll, uh, we'll show why here in a second here. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, for, sorry, we didn't finish it, but sexual immorality is a sin against the body. And then he says, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you understand that sexual immorality is temple desecration? God's talking about something radically different than us, but his picture can make sense of it. Remember I said when we give it, we act like it's nothing, but when it's taken, it becomes something far beyond our imagination. The kind of things where it can destroy a whole life. The kind of things where people cannot figure out how to use their body and their soul and everything else like that because sexual immorality has raped and destroyed something that they don't know how to fix. That is the power of the thing we're talking about. And Paul's like, yes, that's because it is actually a spiritual thing. So check this out. You've seen this picture before. Uh, you are a soul, and your flesh is your ability to, to, to touch planet Earth, to, to actually 
right? But you have a spirit, which is actually your ability to engage with God. And in our world, we've been taught that sex, well, we actually have two words for it. When we use the F word to describe it, we're like, oh, that's just, it only is touching my flesh. It's just two fleshes doing a thing, friends with benefits, something like that. It didn't really count. And then, of course, making love. We use that to try to, discuss, to say, you know, when our souls are touching as well. Paul's looking at you going, the whole thing is touching. There's never an opportunity to engage in sexuality in which every bit of your being, all the way from your flesh, which you might, you know, is the part that's enjoying it in the moment, all the way up to your spirit touching God and back again, all of it is engaged, all of it with every time, which is why when it is taken, you understand it does so much damage. Because that's what you're made out of. Sex was designed by God to be a thing that actually made new souls. That doesn't mean every time you do it, you have to be attempting to. It's the power of the thing. It is made. It was the first thing. When we're told, when we're told to be made in the image of God, the first thing we're told is make new ones. Sex is the act of intimacy. It's the act of giving. It's the act of two people. It is all of it designed together, which is why sex, uh, finally here, fourth point, sex is always an act of worship, whether it is worshiping him or Baal. It is always an act of worship. It is a unique spirit, soul, flesh experience. So a number of years ago, I was watching baseball with a guy from Albania, and he could not figure out the game. No matter, I keep explaining to him, hit the ball, run base, all sorts of things, and he won't, he just can't. You see, when we carry assumptions in there, sometimes they're so strongly held, we don't even understand how they're keeping us from the truth. His assumption was, in sports, the team with the ball is the one that scores. Basketball, football, soccer, all the other sports, except for baseball's little cousin, cricket. Uh, sorry, a little cricket joke there. Sorry, okay. In all the other sports, so he has the assumption in his head to have the ball, which is why when the other team, he could not figure it out, right? Until his assumption was fixed, he couldn't understand it. In the same way, I want to look at a few assumptions that we carry in and what they do to us. And they've been given to us by our culture, and they are utterly false, and they're destroying us, and they're keeping us from seeing the majesty of the thing offered to us. So cultural assumption number one is that sex is natural. Oh, it's just natural. It's natural. No, sex is supernatural. It engages everything all at once. It is a thing beyond our imagining. And when we've tried to make it small, we've lied to ourselves, which is why it's not working. Cultural assumption number two is my body is mine. Bodily autonomy is a big deal. And the fact is, it is not yours. It is not the government's. No one has a right to this body except my maker. You see, because my body, according to Paul, is bought with a price. You have no ability to decide what to do with my body, but my maker does. And until I accept that, that I will never understand what I'm really made for, and that part of me that longs to experience the greatness of God and longs to experience all that he has for me, he's like, good, let me use you as you were made to be using me. Whoa, that's my body, God, you can't have it. Well, I'm at loggerheads with myself, it won't work. Three, sex is confined by desire and consent. I mean, that's how our culture uses it, right? Whatever your desire is, desire king. Dallas Willard likes to call it affectus rex, right? Desire king. And consent, right? We know how that works. But it's not working. 
Statistics tell us that somewhere between 25 and 30% of our young women are going to come to adulthood having been sexually abused. Almost everybody is trying out sexuality. Our children are being raised without parents at an unbelievable rate. We're living in a world that tries to act like sex is not a thing, and yet the fruit of it is all over, not just the children being born and not just the children being slaughtered in the name of my own sexual desire called abortion, not just but even the way our marriages don't work and our relationship don't work and the amount of abuse, it's everywhere. The fruit of our warped view of sex is destroying us. And not just as a culture, but I'm deeply concerned about 101 and who's here, what it's doing to us. Sex is defined by divine design. Sex is defined by a God who out of the unbelievable intimacy of the Trinity, the joy of making more became creation. And he put the trace of it in us that the joy of our intimacy would be such that it would make more. And we've decided as a culture that we can take that joy and cause it to serve itself. It doesn't work. And then beyond that, he made us male and female that we could actually reflect the body of Christ. So when you see Ephesians chapter five, where it says husbands and wives practice acting like Christ in the church, and he talks about the mystery of the church, every bit of it points to a design that he made that we would be not just, oh, you know what, hear me out, that we would be reflecting, giving all of ourselves, Christ who gave up all of ourselves and receiving all, that's the picture. It's divine. And until you're practicing it, you're missing it. Well, I want to uh, finish up with a couple thoughts. What's been the cost? Uh, One of the costs is because we keep this weird dichotomy, we're more likely to think about sex from a sitcom than from a serious conversation about its reality. And our children are as well. So what happens is there's a number of you who, who you just sort of reflected the world's picture and not understood why maybe it doesn't fit in your marriage, why, like what I've just talked. Or even worse, I have a, a dear friend who did it all right, you know, he was, he was a virgin when he got married, and he, and he, and he married his young wife, and, and only because of the church's sort of taboo, weird picture of sex, which sort of is, it's all bad, it's all bad, it's all bad, and it's somehow supposed to like flip and become so good when you get married, she can't, she doesn't know how to be with him. She doesn't know how to give herself. No one's ever given her a picture of the glory of God's picture. So instead, everything that's holy sex is weird to her, but she's having an affair because at least illicit sex made sense. Our bad picture has meant that holy sex isn't isn't available or isn't attractive, but illicit sex works, but it destroys us. Imagine the pain of having done everything right to find out your wife doesn't want you, but wants someone else. The young women who, who get to marriage so often, and it often happens to the women. But it's not really there that I'm concerned. And I am concerned about the amount of premarital sex that we've allowed and what it does to us. Because it eats us, it destroys us. But I'm concerned what's going on in your marriages. Most of you here are married. And you're like, oh yeah, those other people, they should hear that thing. But we're married, so it's a, listen to me. Because of our pallid, small cultural picture of sex that we've inherited, sure, we put it in a marriage, which makes it not a sin or whatever, but we still practice the same set of rules. And so we have husbands who are trying to use their wives and wives who don't understand and then make it even worse, wives. Some of you, because of the horrors of our world, have had it robbed from you and you have these wounded places. And I'm about done. You guys would like to come up. You have these wounded places. Would you commit 
to learning how to heal. Because it's like, well, I, I have these wounds, but I'm supposed to just receive my husband fully, but it hurts. I don't know how to do it. Would you commit to actually healing and no longer limping around it? And wives, would you listen and would you become committed to really in holiness receiving your husband so that the joy of the Lord can belong to both of you? And husbands, will you commit to no longer just using your wives? Will you commit to seeing her beauty and giving all of you to all of her? Will you in deep care make sure that we're not using all the other surrounded lewdness and brokenness to try to define our sexuality, but rather would you begin to actually ask God to in the power of his Holy Spirit be there and no longer cast him out with this weird atheistic sex that says God is Lord everywhere except for my bed. Can we be Christians? Can we be holy? Father, I think... It's right that first and foremost, and I want to lift up my brothers and sisters who here today felt on the outside of all this, who feel like this is never going to be a part of their life, and, and, and whose hearts yearn to find the kind of intimacy that we just talked about. Father, our single brothers and sisters, would you... Would you give them courage? And Father, would you show them that, that sex is not God, but that you are, and that, that the, all that sex points at is available in you. And that seems so thin for me to say, Father. And, and I feel like even saying it might feel like a stab in their heart, but Father, would you fill them with life? Would you fill them with joy? Would you give them the opportunity to understand that your presence is the thing that their soul has been longing for? Father, and those who've been broken on this anvil, who've been used and hurt and stolen from it, and this whole area is the exact opposite. There's no longing. As a matter of fact, there's a revulsion and hurt. Father, would you bring real healing? Would you give courage to find wellness in all of it? Would you give the right uh, counselors and, and healers to speak into their soul, Father? Would you find your way into their pain? Would you give them life where uh, others Having a death, Father, for our young men and women who are who are uh, walking into this, Father, would you give them a real sense of purity, a real sense of longing to to keep their body all together for their spouse, so that on that day they might give it in glory and wellness. Father, would you save them from from the ditch that that makes it. Uh, yucky and weird and broken and, and keeps them from enjoying their spouse and would you save them from the other ditch which cheapens it and, and sells it away like Esau selling away his birthright for a stupid cup of stew. Father, would you give them courage to pursue real purity, not because it makes them better, but because it keeps their soul well. Not because it makes them superior, it gives them a reason to brag or anything other than the peace and wellness that comes for you. And over all that, Father, I ask for our married ones that you would give them courage to find sex in their marriage, to cast out all of the, the impurity that they've been keeping on the side or the resentments of one another or the ways that they've hurt one another. And Father, seek to give themselves all together to one another in a way that reflects you, in a way that reflects your temple being used in a way that glorifies you. Father, this subject is so challenging and our culture warps and twists us. Father, would you give us courage to follow the truth?
you guys need to talk more. Um, you know, I keep appointments. I'm a counselor. Couples, listen, I, I care about you so much. Please don't wait until your marriage is on fire to talk to someone like me or someone who knows what they're talking about. The point of hurt is a great spot. We'd love to help you find the intimacy that your soul's been looking for. Uh, just a couple announcements to finish up. Um, so on the first and third Sundays of the month, uh, H2O Church has been putting on junior high or middle school, middle school youth group, and a bunch of our uh, young uh, kids and also Tyler Bach and some of the others have been going and we've been doing it together and really loving it. So if you've got a middle, middle schooler, it's tonight at 6.30 at H2O Church, which is right over by the um, post office. Next week, after church, we'll be having a Making Brookside Your Home. It's just an opportunity to learn how you can jump in more uh, and, and find out how you could be involved in this body, especially if you've been coming and going, how do I really find my way in here? It's, it's not our, what, membership class or whatever. That's longer and has a lot more detail. It's really just learning how you can use the Brookside thing well. If you plan to come, can you sign up at the Connect table? Just let us know how much pizza to order. Um, we'd love to have you. And uh, two weeks from now, right? Is it two or is it three? It's the 25th. Whatever's the 25th, because of uh, the college starting, we get bumped to the evening, which is actually really exciting because we could probably meet in the morning, but it's really weird, students everywhere. And this gives us an opportunity to really allow the students to really contact us. Those men and women, uh, young men and women, 18 and 19 year olds, who are jumping in going, how do I find God at Bowling Green? We want them to be able to find him here. And we're super excited about that. So that evening, we will not have Sunday morning service. We'll have 5.30 service in the same room, same rules. It'll be awesome. Thanks so much for coming. Last thing, last thing. Today's Zach Doan's last Sunday. If you love Zach Doan, Zach asked if we would pray for him, but he didn't want to do the whole stage thing because, you know. Uh, so we're going to meet right over here after, uh, right now after. And so if you want to come, we're just going to lay uh, hands on and, and pray Zach out of here. He's moving off to Colorado. And uh, have a great Sunday. Thanks.